Good morning. So good to see you this morning. We're going to begin our time together honoring those who have or who are serving in our military. And so when you hear your military theme song, if you would stand up so we could recognize you.
Amen. Why don't you stand to your feet? Good morning. It's good to see each of you here on this July 4th Eve. Uh, I love it when Jonathan does that song and, and we're able to recognize all the individuals who have served our country and uh, provided us a banner of freedom that when we go to bed at night, we can see, sleep safely and soundly. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts for what you have done for our country, for what you do. And today, let's remember our service men and women uh, who are uh, in, from our church uh, serving in our military armed forces. So thank you so much. Um, we want to welcome each one of you here today to this service. And let me say first off, um, thank you for praying for us. Uh, our Alaska mission team, our youth mission team, got back early, early, early on Monday morning. Our flight landed at 12.38. Kevin Seeger was so kind to come and get us at the airport about 1 o'clock. We wound up getting into bed about 2. The next night, I'm lying in the bed at 3 o'clock in the morning looking straight at the ceiling, not being able to go to sleep because of the time difference. Uh, Dole Malden saw me this morning and said, I hope you enjoyed your vacation. I was like, man, I had, the, I had the best air mattress and the best bologna and cheese that money could buy. <laughs> it was an incredible week of ministry. Uh, thank you again for all your support and for your prayers. 
Um, we do want to welcome each and every one of you to our services this, this morning. And if you're visiting with us, we extend a special welcome to you. And if you would, uh, reach in front of you in the pew back there and grab a care card and fill that information out and put it in one of the, on one of the tables in the foyer there. We sure would appreciate it. We would love to know of your visit with us this morning. And if you have a prayer request or a prayer need, uh, we also would like for you to fill that out on the opposite side. That goes for anybody. We would, we would love to know how we can pray for you. Um, this week being the fourth week, a couple of things. Uh, the office is closed tomorrow in observance of the fourth holiday. And then there will be no Wednesday night activities this week for anybody. So uh, just make sure that you mark your calendars for that. Uh, fast approaching, though, is Vacation Bible School, the last week of this month. Uh, it's coming. Yes, I heard a big yippee. That's going to be, that is going to be a, a lot of fun. Can't wait for that week. Um, with that said, there are many things that we need to do. First of all, uh, if you are volunteering that week, we are having a special training next Sunday night at 5 o'clock in the core gym. We'll have refreshments, but the main uh, focus is getting ready for that week. So if you are signed up to help uh, in any way, shape, or form, come uh, next Sunday night uh, at 5 o'clock so we can better learn how uh, to minister that week. Uh, if you've not registered your kids or grandkids yet for that week, please go online and do that just as soon as you can. Uh, and then... For those who pre-register online, uh, 4th through 7th graders will be entered into a drawing for a super fun Lego set. So if your kid is, is pre-registered, that sounds like a pretty good deal. So uh, make sure that you get your kid pre-registered for that week. Also, uh, we are pre-registering for snack suppers. And you need to pre-register for that now so that we'll know how to prepare for that week. And if you bring your student, your kid, uh, for those snack suppers, parents, you need to stay in the gym with your kids until they are uh, uh, given over to the VBS leaders. You can't just come and drop them off and say, see you later, we're going to Hardee's. So, um, <laughs> could happen. Uh, but just remain in the gym and, 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 and enjoy the dinner with them. Uh, and then this year, too, we are having adult VBS. And so there's many, many ways uh, that uh, we can be involved. And it all starts with a kickoff on July 24th, that Sunday night at 5 o'clock. So make sure that you're praying about VBS. And it is a, a huge evangelistic tool. Uh, of our church ministry. So be praying that the Lord just does an incredible work in the lives of everyone who will be attending uh, that week. Um, deacon nominations are coming up and they're actually due July the 24th and you can get your form in the vestibule today and just be praying over who you feel like you would like to nominate uh, for that important position. So make sure that uh, you get your deacon nominations in. Uh, Dave and Donna Phillips want me to remind you, uh, the seniors, uh, that the trip for Fort Caswell coming up in September uh, is 
uh, the registration deadline is quickly approaching. Matter of fact, it is July 15th. So if you plan on going on the senior adult mission uh, trip to uh, Fort Caswell, uh, see Dave or Donna Phillips and get registered by uh, July the 15th. Uh, we also have a women's ministry event coming up on July 14th. Uh, it's called You Can Do It. Uh, it's at 630. And here you will learn and you can choose from these different areas. Sounded, uh, sounded pretty interesting. Uh, cleaning made easy. Uh, phone photography. Uh, container gardening. Smart cooking. Uh, personal and cyber protection, all of these things that you'll be going over that night. Uh, so if, if you want to be a part of that, ladies, uh, see Connie for tickets, um, and they are available through next Sunday, and the cost is $5. So uh, that's it for our announcements this morning. Again, thank you so much for being here. As we uh, get ready for worship and prepare our hearts, I would like just to have a, a time that we spend thanking the Lord uh, for this great country that we live in and then pray for our leaders. And after a moment of silence or two, as you pray in your heart, I will close this in a word of prayer. So let's pray together. Father God, we are indeed grateful and thankful that we can gather in this building and worship you without persecution. Matter of fact, there are churches that are meeting now all over this great country under that same umbrella of protection. And Father, we thank you and praise you that, Lord, even though we see things happening the way that they're happening across this land. Your hand of blessing has been upon us and we thank you and praise you. But Lord, we are a nation that has forgotten you. The Bible says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. But sin is a reproach to any people. Lord, we see signs all around us of your reproach. We see signs of your judgment. Romans 1 says, when we see going on in society what we now currently see, it's an indication that in your judgment, you've given us over to our sin. God, we need revival as we've never needed it before. Our land, our churches, ourselves stand in need of the gospel. Father God, revive our hearts that we might once again turn to you. You are a great and awesome God, but we've sinned, Father. Please forgive us. God, we need you to do work in our nation that we just simply can't do. Our leaders can't do it. Only you, Father, can revive us. Only you, God, can turn our hearts and stir our hearts back to you. So, Father God, I pray that you change us. 
We pray that you change our leaders, that they would turn to you. We pray that you would change our churches, that we would turn to you. We pray, Father, that you would change ourselves individually, that we would turn to you completely. God, we pray for all our soldiers and our law enforcement, God, that you would protect them as they protect us. We pray, Father, for any leadership of any kind that you would give them wisdom from above. Father, I pray that you would forgive us for what we have made this life about. We've made this life about what is here and now. We've made it about this world when indeed your word has told us that we're simply pilgrims passing through this land. We've given the temporal, the prerogative in our life. And we've forgotten the eternal. Father God, forgive us. Father, I pray that you would help us to walk in your light. Help us to walk in your love. Help us to walk in your forgiveness. And cleanse us from the stain of our guilt. Remove that far from us, Lord. God, I pray that we would desire your word as our body desires food. I pray, Father, that we would hunger and thirst for righteousness. God, I pray that our church would be cleansed and empowered by the Holy Spirit to be an army for righteousness in which you have called us to be. May we truly be salt and light in our communities and in our land, in our schools and in our businesses, that others would see the work of the Holy Spirit in us and that's something that we might say or do but attract them to the gospel father as paul said in ephesians 5 help us to be imitators of you may your character and holiness and love be seen in all of us lord save us save our nation save us from ourselves and save us from the evil one and Father, may we know and feel and sense the blessings of your love and compassion on all of our lives. And we pray this in the matchless, strong name of our Lord and Savior, the greatest warrior of all time, Jesus Christ. Amen.
faithful in all that lies behind us, faithful in all that waits before, this heart peace and strong assurance, you're the faithful, faithful Lord, you're the faithful, faithful Lord, faithful in all that lies
find Mark chapter 2 in your copy of the scripture and Lord willing we will finish up the message that we started last week. Uh, this will be like part two to that message. We're looking at Jesus' authority, Jesus' authority over life, Jesus' authority over religious practice, and Jesus' authority over the Sabbath. Mark chapter 2, we'll begin reading in verse uh, 18, and we'll read down through verse 6 of Mark chapter 3. So if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word, please. Again, Mark 2, beginning in 18, reading down through verse 6 of chapter 3. Uh, Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples... Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And now we'll begin where I told you a moment ago we would begin. <laughs> now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the wedding groom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. And the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. So that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? But they were silent, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. 
he stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Thank you. You may be seated. Last time we were in Mark, we looked at verses 13 to 17 and the conversion of Levi or Matthew that is recorded there. We saw, we saw how Jesus rubbed shoulders with people outside of the accepted circles. He would call somebody like a Levi, a tax collector, a despised tax collector to come and follow him and be his disciple. Now folks, don't misunderstand. He never condoned sin. He very clearly called upon the outcast of society to repent and follow him. But what made Jesus so different than the rest of the religious establishment was that he even dared to associate with outcasts like Levi. You know, so oftentimes it was the outcasts, though, who recognized their sin. They recognized their guilt. They knew that they needed a Savior. They were literally the poor in spirit, the first beatitude. Jesus said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The, poor, the, the outcasts were the ones who were poor in spirit, who recognized their poverty of soul, their bankruptcy before a holy God. But on the other hand, the religious leaders didn't see themselves as having any needs. They thought they were righteous. Now we continue today to look at this whole theme. Jesus is touching lives, he's meeting needs, and the religious establishment did not like it. Jesus didn't fit into their mold. They even questioned Jesus' authority. Who is he that thinks he can do such things as what he's doing? And so today we're going to continue to look at this theme of Jesus' authority over all things. Jesus' authority not only over human life, but also his authority over all of creation, over all of nature, over disease and sickness and demons. Mark's going to add to that, Jesus has authority over religious traditions and he has authority over the Sabbath. Folks, again, this is what Mark is wanting us to see at this point in his gospel. Jesus has authority over everything. Who is he? He's the son of the living God. He's sovereign God over all things. And what this means for you and for me is there's nothing in your life. There's nothing in the life of your child. There's nothing in the life of your grandchild that is beyond the scope of his ability to do something about it. And that's good news. I want you to see, first of all, this morning, the authority of Jesus over men's lives. There in verses 13 to 17, just summarizing where we were last week, Jesus called Levi to follow him. 
And again, the religious establishment is thinking the nerve of this guy. Associating somebody uh, with somebody like a traitor, a tax collector, a thief, a corrupt man. But again, their failure was they didn't see their own sin. You see, folks, the Bible says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. And so lest you think that those verses are only intended for somebody else, they're not. They're also intended for you and they're intended for me. I've sinned, you've sinned. And we need to let that roll off of our lips and understand that if it were not for the grace of God, we would all bust hell wide open. You can be the biggest tither in the church and bust hell wide open. You can be a preacher and bust hell wide open. If you don't believe it, just read what Jesus said about that in Matthew chapter 7. Folks, we are not Christians just because we say with our lips that we are Christians. Have you been born again? And so again, the word sinner applies to you and me. You may not like that at times. I may not like that at times, but it's true. We're not to be like the lady in church who met her pastor in the lobby after the sermon when everybody was leaving, and she said, Pastor, you let that bunch have it today, didn't you? You told them. I hope they were listening to you today. They needed to listen. We all need it. And folks, again, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus would call somebody like Levi, that he would call somebody like me and somebody like you. Moving on this morning, I want you to see from verses 18 to 22, the authority of Jesus over religious practice. It says, now, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now some scholars would tell us that at the very moment that Jesus was feasting with Levi, the Pharisees and John's disciples were fasting. They would tell us that as we read verse 18, we need to understand there was something on the calendar. There was some type of special event going on, even as these words are being said, that, that the Pharisees and John's disciples were fasting while Jesus' disciples are feasting. I mean, that sort of brings to life what may be going on here. And we need to understand what the Bible says about fasting. The Bible only clearly prescribed fasting in the book of Leviticus for one day a week. It would be associated with the Day of Atonement. But the Pharisees and the scribes of the law had added two days a week to that one day. By the way, that one day a year, that was to be sort of like a national day of fasting and prayer and repentance. I think with what's going on in our nation right now, we would do well to have a day like that. But again, they added two more days to it. 
And in addition to this, when they were fasting, they wanted everybody to see them as fasting. Their hair would be disheveled. Their clothing would be disheveled. They would go out in public sort of unkept. And Jesus addressed that in Matthew chapter 6. He said, when you fast, comb your hair, you know, neaten up yourself. Don't appear to be fasting. And he said about these religious leaders who only wanted to be seen by men as fasting. He said, don't think that you're going to get any kind of reward for, from God. You weren't after a reward from God anyway. You just wanted to appear religious from people. And you know what? There's some people who are going to pat you on the back and recognize you as being religious. And, but Jesus said, don't expect any kind of reward from God. You got the reward from men that you were after. The Pharisees added so many rules and regulations to the Jewish faith that they really stole all of the joy out of living for God. Their attitude was basically if anybody's celebrating or smiling, they must be sinning. They're kind of like the story of the lady holding her toddler in the pew at, at church and the toddler standing up in the pew and looking back at everybody behind her and she's smiling and laughing and the mom pops her on behind and says, Stop smiling, you're in church. <laughs> That's sort of how the Pharisees must have been. And again, they didn't like Jesus associating with the likes of, of a Levi. And they didn't understand also why Jesus' disciples were not fasting. I mean, instead of fasting like John's disciples and they were, Jesus' disciples are at a feast at a sinner's house. And what was Jesus' response? He draws on the wedding analogy of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, Israel was viewed as the bride of Jehovah. And usually the emphasis there was on the fact that Israel as Jehovah's bride had failed. In the New Testament, who's the bride? The church. Israel was the bride, God's bride in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's the church. And what Jesus emphasizes here is the joy of a bridal party. Nobody throws a, a wedding and has everybody solemn and fasting at a wedding. A wedding is a time of celebration. The groom is there. Uh, he and his uh, family and friends are there. The bride's there and her family and friends. Again, it's a time of celebration. And people love to eat at weddings, don't they? Now, back when Connie and I got married, you know, you, you left the sanctuary after the ceremony. You went to the fellowship hall. You had nut, uh, nuts and mints and, you know, little pieces of broccoli and cauliflower and carrots with, with ranch dressing. And you might have meatballs and a barbecue sauce or those little mini hot dogs, but that was about it. And now you go to a wedding and, folks, you get a feast. And that's more like it was in Bible days. And so young ladies, if your parents complain about the cost of the reception at the wedding, just tell them you're being biblical. 
some weddings have drinking and dancing. And, I mean, it's just a big party. In Bible times, this wedding party would go on for a solid week. If you had lost your spouse in death and you were remarrying somebody, the wedding celebration went on for three days. But if it was a first marriage, it went on for a week. And the groom would have his buddies at his house. You can read up the parable of the ten virgins, five wise, five foolish, in Matthew 25 to understand this. The, the groom and, and his wedding party would meet at his house, and they would have a big celebration. The, the bride and her friends would meet at her house, have a big celebration. And, and then uh, there would be runners who, after dark, after it had gone on about a week, they would light their lamps. They would go through the streets to the bride's house to get the bride and all of her wedding party to say, come now, everything's ready. Again, a huge time of celebration. And folks, think about it. If you lived in a culture where it was a hand-to-mouth existence, to take a break like this from the rigors of life and be at a wedding party at somebody else's expense for a whole entire week, I mean, that was a big deal. In fact, it was the height of rudeness and being uncouth. If you did not respond to a wedding invitation, you just didn't do that. That was not culturally acceptable. You went. And Jesus' point here is that he's the groom and, and his disciples are the bride. The New Testament again picks up on that bride of Christ, God's bride analogy. And as long as the groom and the bride are together at the wedding celebration, it's not a time to fast. No one goes to a wedding to fast. It's a time to splurge. Now Jesus goes on to, protect, to predict his own death here. He tells there's going to be a time that the groom's taken away. And then the bride can fast. Now, the New Testament doesn't lay down hard and fast rules for fasting. Matthew 6 assumes that we will have times that we fast. And again, we're not to advertise it. The left hand is not to know what the right hand is doing. There are times fasting in a believer's life is appropriate. And what does it symbolize? It symbolizes that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word from the mouth of God. And it also symbolizes our spiritual poverty over our sin and our repentance from that sin. But again, as Jesus points out, all of this is not appropriate while he was on the earth. While he was on the earth, it was a sign that the kingdom of God has come near. It's a joyous time. He's announcing the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so it's a time to celebrate. And he gives two analogies there in verses 21 and 22. And these analogies show that Jesus did not come simply to spruce up Judaism. 
He came to fulfill the Old Testament law. He came to inaugurate a new covenant in his blood. But he did not come simply to offer Judaism a facelift. And he gives an analogy here of a new patch and new wine. And the point is essentially the same in both of these analogies. With a new patch, when you wash it, it would shrink. If it was sewn onto an old garment, it would tear away and rip up the old, making the tear worse. Now I realize today we don't do this. You know, if we buy a $30 pair of jeans... Uh, you can rip tears in them and bleach different areas and turn around and sell them for 90 bucks. <laughs> Forty years ago, a mom might say, you can't wear those jeans, they've got a rip in them. Now somebody might say, are you sure you want to wear those jeans? They don't have a rip in them. So Jesus has just given a recipe here how you can make your jeans more stylish, Right? So a new patch on old jeans, wash and dry them, and the new patch of un unshrunk material will shrink and make the tear worse. You have a recipe here for increasing the value of your jeans. Just kidding. But you get the point of what Christ is saying, and the point's the same with the wineskins. A new wineskin, which wineskins were generally goat skins. They were soft and they were pliable. And you could put the grapes in there and as they fermented and the gases would expand, the new skin, soft and pliable, would expand with the gases. But an old skin that's already been stretched by the gases of fermentation and aged would become hard and brittle. And so if you put new wine or unfermented wine uh, in those old wine skins, then as it fermented, the gases would expand and it would rupture the skins and you would lose all of the wine. Again, folks, Jesus didn't come just to spruce up the old. He didn't come just to spruce up Judaism the new covenant is new just read the book of Hebrews the old covenant was fading one better than Moses was here we've got a better high priest we've got a better sacrifice amen the new has ushered out the old you see, folks, the Old Covenant is important. It's why we still study. It's why we still study the Old Testament in a New Testament church. The Old Testament is God's Word. And we see the foundation of our faith in the Old Testament. If you had never been exposed to the Bible before, if you knew nothing about the Bible, you knew nothing about Christianity, if somebody handed you a New Testament and said, here, start reading this, you would begin to read it at Matthew 1.1. And you would have the sense that you've missed something. There's a whole entire old uh, backstory that, that you would need to understand, and that's true. But now that the new has come, the old doesn't take center stage. 
as Hebrews points out, God's not even dealing with people anymore on the basis of the old. He's dealing with people on the basis of what they do with Jesus Christ. The new has fulfilled the old. And the religious leaders were blind to this. They were blind to the fact that Jesus is Lord. He's the Messiah. And he's Lord, being the Messiah, he's Lord over all of their traditions, over all of their practices. And I want you to stop and think about this a minute because maybe somebody here has some kind of religious practice that they do without fail. I'm talking here about some kind of practice that isn't prescribed in Scripture because, I mean, we need to do whatever Scripture prescribes. But I'm talking about something here that Scripture doesn't prescribe, but you do. And maybe it would be unheard of for you not to do that. But you need to stop and ask yourself, has this become a substitute for Jesus? Maybe you need to realize what I really need is Jesus. And is my practice, is my tradition clouding my vision of Jesus? Is it getting in the way of me seeing Him? If so, it's dangerous. It's not only useless, but it's dangerous. And the Pharisees needed to see that they were in danger. They were in grave danger because their traditions were blinding them from God's Messiah standing right in front of them. What are you doing to celebrate Jesus in your life? Are you seeking Him? Are you serving Him? Are you making your life about Him? They had religious things that got in the way of seeing Jesus. Today we not only have that, but we have all kinds of secular things as well that keep us from seeing Jesus. Folks, I want you to understand Jesus is greater than any kind of tradition you have, any kind of practice you have. Jesus is greater. And so do you do things that help you to seek Him and to know Him? Third, I want you to notice with me, the authority of Jesus over the Sabbath. The authority of Jesus over the Sabbath. Verse 23 tells us one Sabbath he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? The Pharisees became more legalistic over the Sabbath probably than over any other thing. God had, of course, told them that they were to work six days and they were to rest the seventh day. And it was based on the fact, it went all the way back to the book of Genesis, it was based on the fact that God created everything in six days and he rested the seventh. Why did God rest the seventh? Did God need rest? Was God tired? Of course not. The Bible says God, God doesn't slumber nor sleep. It was to set a pattern for us because we do need rest. 
The Sabbath was made for man. It was so that man would not be treated like a machine who could be worked nonstop. And it was also for the sake of your animals. Men were to not work their animals nonstop. They were to let their animals, their beasts of burdens, rest as well. And so the Sabbath was to be for man's benefit. It was a day to recharge and a day to refocus. It was a gift from God. Even the land itself was to have a Sabbath. Every seventh year they were to give the land of rest. And that's one of the reasons they went into exile for 70 years. Because they had been failing to give the land rest. And so in the exile, God was reclaiming the Sabbath for the land. For all of those years, they had ignored it. And so when they came back from exile, the Pharisees became especially legalistic over the Sabbath. For instance, if a man spit on the ground... And disturbed the ground. They said he had plowed. You couldn't untie a knot on the Sabbath. If the lace on your sandal had gotten in a knot. You couldn't untie that knot to the next day. If you tore a garment. Uh, you tore uh, your robe for instance. You could sew that tear back. As long as you only sewed one stitch. You could walk 1,999 steps. You could not walk 2,000 steps. They had all these endless rules for the Sabbath. But at the same time, the religious leaders came up with all kinds of nice little nuances how they could get around these rules. So here's Jesus and his disciples on the Sabbath. They're walking through the grain fields and his disciples are hungry. And so they're picking the grain and, and sort of mashing it and, and, and eating it. And so in the eyes of the Pharisees, they are picking and harvesting. They're working. To them, to the Pharisees, human hunger did not matter. And so Jesus reminds them of an Old Testament setting. It's like Jesus is saying, do you guys claim, not you who claim to know the scripture so well, do you not remember what happened to David? In 1 Samuel 21, David is on the run from Saul. His men are hungry. And so he asked the high priest for bread, the showbread that was to be kept on the table of presents and changed out periodically with fresh bread. Only the priest could eat the bread that had been discarded. It was not lawful for anybody but the priest to eat it. But in response to human need, David, their hero, was given bread. Jesus is saying, do you guys not remember this? How human need took precedence over a law? 
He points out the same principle with his disciples. Human hunger, human need takes priority over rules and regulations. I had a seminary professor said, if you're on your way to church and you pass by a lady with baby and a toddler, and baby and toddler's crying, she's standing on the side of the road, she's got a flat tire, and you stop and roll down your window, ma'am, I'm on the way to church right now. I can't change your tire, can't help you, but if your car's still here, and you're still here with your babies tomorrow, I'll come back and help you. He said, you know, if that's your attitude, you've become too religious for me. You've missed the whole point. If we've decided that on the Sabbath or the Lord's Day, we can't help somebody in need, we've missed the point of it all. Jesus even said on another occasion, you have an ox falls in a ditch on the Sabbath. Don't you get him out? Of course you do. So yes, a day of rest is given as a gift of God to man for man's sake. And we need to understand the importance of that. Folks, it is not good. It's not good for you and your kids. It's not good for, for me. It's not good for any of us to go 24-7. You know, in the days before electricity, and nobody, nobody would want to go back to that, but the days before electricity, it got dark outside. What people typically do? Went to bed. Sun comes up early in the morning. What do people do? They get up. Your body was in the, the rhythm with daytime and nighttime. Through the years, because of electricity, Businesses stay open late. Some never close. Some of you remember all businesses used to be closed on Sundays. I know of one man in the church. He and his brother, when they got home after church, they'd want to ride their dirt bikes. Their parents wouldn't even let them ride their dirt bikes. It was Sunday. But now Sunday's just any other day. Any other day. And again, many businesses never close. Their doors never shut. Lights never turned off. Some entertainment venues open after dark. The, the result of all this is what? We go on and on and on. We never stop. And some of us might even take our electronic devices to bed with us and you're up 1, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. You're answering email and looking at email and doing all kinds of work on your phone or iPad. I mean, we never stop. And I don't think it's a coincidence that alongside of this, America is having problems with depression and anxiety and stress and hypertension like never before. We never stop. We never give ourselves a rest. Folks, a day of worship and rest helps relieve our tensions, helps us relax, recharge. It helps us focus on God again and His gifts to us. It is good for us. And it reminds us that life is sacred. It's a refocus that reminds us that all of life is, is sacred. It's a day again we refocus on Him and His priorities in our lives. And we kind of take stock of our lives on a 
day like this. Where am I going in my life? What am I about? What's the priority for me and my family? What are we seeking? Now, I know some are going to come up to me after church and ask whether it's the seventh day or the first day of the week, like we do, that the early church started. That's not even my purpose here. I'm just saying that a day of rest was a gift. The Sabbath was made for man. It wasn't man made for the Sabbath. The man, the woman, takes priority. It's a gift. And I'm not even going to get into what you can and can't do on the Sabbath or on the Lord's Day. It should include worship and it's the Lord's day we call it now. And you need to remember that. It's not the Lord's hour. It's not the Lord's 90 minutes or three hours. It's the Lord's day. So we focus on Him. And then we rest and we reevaluate our lives. If you get to the end of this day and you're more tired than ever before going into a new week, you've done something wrong. But folks, we dare not become legalistic about it to where people can't even help people in need. Jesus makes that same point as we turn over into chapter 3 he heals a man on the Sabbath he's meeting needs the disciples are plucking grain for their need of food and Jesus is healing a man because of his need of being made well and his disciples are watching him to see what he's going to do they were like vultures watching him looking for an excuse to pounce on what he's doing here's a man no doubt has suffered greatly because of his disability with a withered hand and in a society like theirs back then of hard day labor no doubt this man's withered hand has affected his ability to even take care of his family so Jesus is going to heal him. And he asks if it's right to do good on the Sabbath. And they're so rules oriented, they're so legalistic, they won't even answer Jesus. And he gets angry at them. Now folks, I want you to understand, Jesus never got angry over repentant sinners in the New Testament. He didn't get angry at the woman at the well. He didn't get angry at the woman caught in adultery. But Jesus did get angry at the hearts, the hard hearts of the religious leaders. He got angry at putting rules ahead of people. What does he do? He heals the man. And from this point on in the Gospels, the Pharisees, we're told, begin plotting as to how they can put Jesus to death. Do you see the sad irony here? Here is Jesus ministering to life. Jesus giving life back to people. And the Pharisees are angry at that and they want to now take the life away from the one who is giving 
lives. Sad. And they can't even see what they're doing. Folks, there were two enemies in the New Testament. The libertine on the one hand who said, I'm saved by grace. Now I can do anything I want to with my life. I can live in sin. I'm saved by grace. The libertine doesn't even understand what grace is about. If you think because you're saved by grace, you can live in sin, do anything you want, you don't understand grace. The other enemy of the gospel was legalism. The person who had rules and regulations and laws, and they put that above everything else. The legalist. And both of those are still around today. Now I want you to notice how the Pharisees become bedfellows with their enemies, the Herodians. Now they're joined up with the Herodians who would have been ambassadors for Rome. The Jews despise the Romans, the oppressors. But here's the enemies of Jesus who are also enemies of one another. But because Jesus is the enemy of both of them, here's enemies joining up together and becoming bedfellows as to how they can destroy Jesus. It's pretty sad how we'll join hands with our enemies to hurt somebody. Let me just wrap up, give you a couple of things in closing. The New Testament, number one, I want you to understand the New Testament isn't simply the Old Testament on steroids. The New Testament calls for belief in a new sacrifice, the Lord Jesus, who takes away the sin of the world. The Old Testament lays the foundation, naturally flows into the new, but God isn't dealing with people anymore on the basis of the old. Paul said to the Colossians in Colossians 2 that they're not to let rules and laws blind them to their need of Jesus Christ. Do traditions and laws blind you to the gospel of Jesus Christ? You need to come to Christ. He's the one who will set you free. Laws, traditions keep you in bondage. Jesus Christ will set you free. Amen? Let's not dismiss that this doesn't apply to, hey, we're not guilty of any of this today. Some of you in here, I know some of you in here, were raised in traditions that if you were a man in church and your hair grew long enough, it touched your ears, brother, you weren't right with God. You better get a haircut. Or a woman, if your skirt was an inch too short, you might be put out of the church. Now, folks, we need to be modest. Christians need to be modest. Not denying that. But some of you remember how legalistic your environment was. But again, Christianity isn't about that. It's about a relationship with Christ. Do you know Him? Have you come to Him? And then a second point in closing here. Understand that God gave the Sabbath in the Old Testament, the Lord's Day in the New Testament, for your benefit, my benefit. How are you using a day like today? How are you using this day? 
Are you using a day like this as God intends or have you made it all about you? We're to focus on God, be renewed in our relationship with Him. We're to be refreshed in our bodies and we're to be ready for a new week where we can serve Him in our lives. Is this day helping you to accomplish that? Father, we thank you for this passage. Lord, we love traditions. We love laws. We love a checklist. Because we can say, been there and done that. Check the blocks. Lord, help us not to be that way in our relationship with you. Help us to keep the focus on Christ. And the freedom that he offers. But it's not a freedom to go and live in sin. It's a freedom to go and live in the new life of holiness to which he calls us. But Lord, help us never to become so blind to traditions that we would, that we would even look at a day like today as a day that we could not help somebody in need. We'd need to wait until tomorrow. Lord, thank you for the way that you made this so plain and clear in the Bible. And I pray that we would not be like the Pharisees who would be blinded to it. God, may our, may our lives this day and every day be about what is a priority to you. I pray for those this morning who might be evaluating something in their lives about rules and traditions that are beyond what the scripture teaches. But they insist on others around them have to still do those. Lord, take the veil off. To those who abuse a day like the Lord's day and have made it something else, forgive them. And help this day to be what you intend it to be. Lord, may each of us right now reevaluate some things in our lives. And for those who need Christ, that they would come to Christ. You're calling through the power of your spirit that they would come to Christ. And be set free in him. For it's in his name that we pray.